if we did a better job of honoring our teachers a little more like soldiers and paying them a little more like doctors, this country would be a better place for everybody, especially for those who seek opportunity. Have you ever felt a visceral attraction to a politician? There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. I am your voice. Ask yourself if they're really telling the truth. This is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting. This is Subliminally Correct, a podcast where we examine all the ways politicians and newsmakers are using psychological tactics to influence you every single day. And now, join myself, Taylor Sherman, certified hypnosis instructor and executive coach, along with my co-host, Alex Dobranek, political consultant and certified consulting hypnotist, on this episode of Subliminally Correct. And welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. Taylor, what are we up for today? Today we're going to be listening to Pete Buttigieg going to a place that he has spent a lot of time, and that is in church. In this event, Mayor Pete is invited to attend the Greenleaf Christian Church, whose stated mission is eradicating poverty. Now, in this first clip, we're going to be listening to Pete frame his entry into the church with a religious narrative of why he was meant to be president. But before we get to that first clip, take a moment now and go check out our Patreon page. You can find the link in the show notes below or by clicking on support us and you can find that link on our website. If you are a friend of the pod, contribute for just a few dollars and get access to the exclusive content that we have to offer. And now let's listen to this first clip where he moves into his religious narrative. Well, thank you, first of all, Bishop, for the opportunity to be here. Thank you for uh, welcoming us earlier to worship with you. Uh, I'm an admirer of your ministry, of your work. Uh, I met your mother recently, so I ought to say I'm an admirer of your work, uh, having met Mother Barbara earlier today. And am so thankful for the opportunity for us to discuss issues of moral urgency that are at stake in this election. I believe that I am here to make myself useful, that I am part of this political process to make my use, myself useful, but also that I was put on this earth in order to make myself useful to others. Uh, these are the values that I was taught by my parents. These are the values that I'm taught by my faith. And one of the reasons I was so electrified when I first heard you speak years ago in Philadelphia mentioning, cautioning against the voices that say, as I believe you said, uh, so little about what God says so much and so much about what God says so little, is it made me take stock of what I hear about when I'm sitting in the pew on Sunday. And the scripture that says that when we think of the prisoner, we are supposed to imagine ourselves as though we are imprisoned with them. And the scripture that says we will be judged based on whether we welcome the stranger. And the scripture that says that whoever oppresses the poor taunts their maker. And trying to fit those moral teachings to the world we were living in. These are lessons that I learned in the streets of my own city as well. Where I was trusted at the age of 29, eight years ago 
to take the leadership of the mayor's office in South Bend, a community that is uh, low income, that is diverse, that was shrinking, that was hurting, that had been described as dying, and took steps together in a community that even after I had become mayor was still educating me every day about what was needed and what we could do together. And we invested in neighborhoods that hadn't seen investment in a long time. And we found places that were emptying out begin to fill up again. And we took steps to ensure that the health that was deteriorating, not so much because of what happened in the hospital or the doctor's office, but what was happening as a matter of environmental justice and other issues in homes, got addressed. And in these eight years, often we have come up short, but often we have been able to advance together when our priorities were in the right place. Reducing poverty, improving health, and growing in a city that had been shrinking. And so here we have Buttigieg coming out and really giving a, an impassioned religious narrative of how he was meant to be on this earth and his whole purpose. And he, he, he sort of leads with a lot of scripture and a, a lot of biblical terms and, and, and sort of uh, references. And that's something that really is unique to Buttigieg. If you listen to the other candidates, can you imagine, you know, Bernie Sanders or I guess maybe Elizabeth Warren, but some of the other candidates, you know, using this type of language and speaking in this kind of a way, and they don't. And this is something that he is really able to own, and that's something that really endears him to a lot of conservatives, a lot of people who are more religious on the left, and it's a way for him to really relate himself to these people and get them on his side because he's speaking their language. And especially when he's, you know, in a religious setting like this one where he's talking to a pastor and, you know, congregations, he's really able to, um, to, to relate in a way that I think a lot of other candidates sort of struggle to. Yeah, what I really love about this part here of, you know, Pete Buttigieg as he starts off, this is obviously something that he rehearsed a lot, is that he really takes steps to tie in what he's doing to what he feels are the perhaps values or perspectives of the people that are there in the church. And so he starts off with describing what the minister had said in a previous speech. And, you know, obviously to do this, he had to go through what this minister had said and then look through some of those things and say, okay, what would be really good for me to say, but quoting his words. Now, when you're saying what someone else has said, that can actually be an incredibly hypnotic device. It's called extended quotes. And so what happens here is, is that, um, you know, as someone once told me that as you start to describe something with someone else's words, well, those ideas start to sink into your mind much more deeply because of that. So Buttigieg here is starting to quote the minister which, with a nice little phrase here. We say so little of what God says so much and so much of what God's, God says so little. And notice how there is a little twist of the tongue there. It's a little bit of a twist of ideas. He takes one thing and frames it on the other, and so it sounds really good. There's a contrast. There's that idea of apposition of opposites. There's a dif difference between little and much. 
And yet the streamline is what God says. So when people listen to that, they hear, okay, this is about God saying it. And because of that, Buttigieg doesn't have to own it, and neither does the minister, of course. And then he takes it and he ties it right into why he's there and what that means about his candidacy for the president. So he talks about these were my moral values and trying to fit those moral teachings into what he was doing. And then he makes this little bridge and he says, and those are the steps that I took as mayor of South Bend. Here's what we had to do there. Here's what you know happened here. When I sit in the pew, this is what happened to me. This is what I faced. This is what occurred to me there. And then he makes this interesting little um, pacing device here where he says, often we came up short. Now, if you think about something like that, someone, you know, this is a candidate for president who obviously doesn't want to admit big errors, especially when he's giving a public speech. Why would he want to do that? And yet by saying things like often we came up short, that's a big catch-all phrase for anything that anyone could hold against him. And he's not really admitting anything there, but it sounds authentic because they go, oh, look, he's acknowledging his own errors. He's saying what we don't really need to hear, right? He's saying something that maybe he doesn't want for us to hear. And even though what he said was so nonspecific, you know, what does that exactly mean? Often we came up short. It doesn't mean a lot. But you see, he then bridges from that. Often we came up short, but often then we also did this other thing. And so he leads then right into another direction, being able to take them and capture them into the next part of his uh, event there. Now, in this next clip, we're going to be jumping forward um, in uh, his talk here, and they're going to be asking Buttigieg about education, and particularly about if you were to appoint the next Secretary of Education, what will be the education priorities? So let's take a listen to this clip where we hear Buttigieg using some more persuasive devices. If you get to appoint the next Secretary of Education, what will be the education priorities of your administration? What will be the education priorities of your administration? Uh, well, thank you both for joining us and for speaking out. Uh, very first consideration for a Secretary of Education is that they believe in public education. Because I don't think we have that right now. Second is that they believe in equity in public education. Third is that they would be willing to commit resources with the backing of the president, of course, who will be willing to go to Congress and go to bat for this to make sure that everybody has access to quality public education. Whether you thrive should not come down to whether you were fortunate enough to win an admissions lottery to one of a handful of schools. By the way, this is important not only for the clear and glaring reason that we need to make sure that we educate everybody well and give them that chance to thrive, but also because 
Right now, we are starting to see many communities where the, the polarization and stratification is happening in our schools. In other words, if, if public school is only considered to be there for people who don't have access to something else, then it becomes one less thing we all have in common as a country at a time when we desperately need to have more things in common as a country. And so for all of these reasons and more, we've got to act. Now, in, in most countries, if you have an area where there's more poverty or, or more need, you can expect that more dollars would go into educating the students in that area. We are one of the few places where often the reverse is true, because of a, partly because of the reliance on property taxes in many places and other problems with the way we fund our schools. So it's why I would begin by routing a massive increase in federal dollars through Title I that sends those dollars to the schools where they are needed most. Another thing is that we need to lift up the teaching profession, and that includes compensating the teaching profession properly. Amen. Amen. You know, I would, alongside those service members you mentioned, I'm afraid there may be a fair number of educators who might find themselves reliant on public assistance because saw, of the wages. You saw one on the paid. film. That's right. From West Virginia. Yeah. She said, I'm a teacher with a four-year degree, and I'm a working poor. And we're talking about public servants, people who we rely on. If, if we did a better job of honoring our teachers a little more like soldiers and paying them a little more like doctors, this country would be a better place for everybody, especially for those who seek opportunity. So here we see Buttigieg really doing something that he is a master at, and it's something that he does over and over and over again. It's something that is taught in politics, something that's taught in any good public speaking uh, this is what uh, Buttigieg is a master of, and that is pivoting from specific policy issues and specific policy questions into more vague values and talking about, you know, very abstract issues. And so here he's asked, what would be the education priorities of the next secretary of education? And the things he brings up are things like, equity and believing in public education and committing resources, having the backing of the president, polarization, stratification. He, he, he talks about all these vague, the only concrete things he actually says is about like compensating teachers. And of course that that's like the common complaint of, you know, every single teacher in America and something that everybody knows about, teachers and the, the problems with the education system is that teachers aren't paid enough. And so what he's really doing here is not talking about anything in particular, but pivoting, making it seem as though he's answering the question, when in reality, he's simply saying, I share your values. The underlying value of your question is important. And here is why it is important and why it is important to me as well. And I'm going to say a bunch of things that validate your concerns and, you know, seem like they're the, you know, they're the reason why I'm going to be the best one to address those concerns without actually saying what he's going to do. And so it's something he does over and over and over and over again, uh, but it's very effective. And, you know, that's why he keeps doing it. Yeah, we have to remember that this talk that Pete is giving is in this Christian church that is focused on poverty issues. 
It's actually modeled off of restoring one of Martin Luther King Jr. initiatives, uh, one of his initiatives that was focused on ending poverty. And it's led by the civil rights leader, uh, Reverend William Barber. And so when Buttigieg is here in this environment and he's talking about public education, you know, let's understand that these are people who might not have a lot of money. These are people who might know people who don't have a lot of money. And so what is their main value? Their main value is, is that they would like for the education that is offered to the public to have equity to be something that is actually a good education and not something that is driven by personal resources. And there's a big contrast here with the current Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, with her very specific focus on private and charter schooling and how she's, you know, focusing on that. And so a couple of little things here that, you know, Pete was doing to make himself more persuasive. You know, one is that when he started to talk about this idea of having the backing of the president. And he, in the video version of this, he actually went and pointed at himself. So right as he was talking about the backing of the president, he took his arm and he actually just pointed right at himself. Well, that's a little subtle nonverbal cue or suggestion that he is going to be the president. And so he's implying that or suggesting that to people. We also hear from him this strong unity framing. Now, we know that Barack Obama, for example, had that thematic appeal, you know, given of that, yes, we can. And so it's this very liberal kind of idea of everyone is protected. It's about all of us and not about someone in particular. There's this unity messaging that he is talking about where he goes into polarization and stratification. And notice also how that rhymes, right? So this is a time where we need to have more things in common. Well, is that everyone that believes that or is that more liberal thinking that believes that, that we need to have things in common? Some other people might say, well, we don't need to have things in common. We just need it to be fair, whatever that means, because it means different things to different people. But then toward the end here, he also starts to go into this idea of honoring teachers like we do other professions. So we need to honor our teachers a little more like soldiers. Paying them a little more like doctors, this country would be a better place for everybody. So he's comparing these multiple public service professions and comparing them and using that word and or using them in the same frame as each other implies that they're the same, that they're just as important, that they're just as in demand. And that's in contrast to more typical conservative policies that might be focused, for example, on a stronger defense department or, you know, focusing more on that. And, you know, conservatives might agree, hey, you know what, we appreciate teachers. We want teachers to be successful. But they might also say, well, but we also want our country to be safe. And so that's the thing that we're going to put all of our priority to. And what Pete is doing here is he's putting them on the same level versus having them on different levels. So a couple interesting things there. Now, in this next clip, we're going to be listening to Mayor Pete being asked about ecological issues. Let's see how he talks about this and what he all gets into in this next segment. So our campaign has seen across this country how whenever communities experience the effects of climate change, from fires to floods 
to drought. The poor suffer first and worse. We also see corporations and corrupt politicians in collusion steal land to drill for minerals, build pipelines, or dump coal ash in ways that poison our water, air, and land. Our question to you. Since you can't address poverty without addressing ecological devastation and climate change, please tell us how your plan to address these issues is good news to the poor. Uh, well, thank you for that, and, and thank you also for shining a light on what is going on in Arizona, because I think it also calls us to remember that the relationship with tribes in this country is a relationship between sovereign nations and tribal sovereignty will be respected in my presidency. Yes. I promise that. Um, and it is often those most vulnerable, Native uh, uh, families, um, African-American families, poor families of every race who have the most to lose. And frankly, globally, it's poor countries that have the most to lose from the effects of ecological devastation and from climate change, which is why we must act. It is another example of where the only way it looks expensive is if we fail to account for the cost of doing what we're doing. Because it would show up pretty quickly if you accounted for it properly that acting now is a bargain relative to cleaning up the, the harm that will be done. Just economically, let alone morally, the harm that is being done. So what can we do about it? I believe that this is one of those moments when America must adopt a national project, that we have to make it something that all of us are part of to end climate change and end our dependency on fossil fuels. It starts with things we could do very quickly. By 2025, we could double the amount of clean energy on our grid. Some things will take longer, but step by step, by 2050, which is about as long as we can possibly do this, uh, by 2050 be a carbon neutral economy across the United States. We've got to. Um, and in order to do that, it's going to take everything that any of us can bring. Not only the development of wind and solar, but also the development of carbon neutral or carbon negative farming. Farming could actually be a huge part of the solution. And in putting out that call, I'm also recruiting a part of America that maybe has only ever heard that they're part of the problem and asking them, uh, and by the way, funding them, to be part of the solution. We need to make sure that federal purchasing invests in things like biofuels. This, we've got to do this across every sector of American life. And the reason why I feel a great deal of hope, the reason I think there is good news in this, as bleak as the current situation and the business-as-usual scenario are, is that we kind of need a national project. I think our country will stand taller when we have a national effort like that. And for once, there's a national project available to us that's not about fighting other people. It's about leading the world and getting something done. And this has to be global. We have to lead the nations of the world because we can't do it alone. But we know the world can't do it without American leadership. So at home, that means massively increasing investment in renewable energy, energy storage, carbon storage, with an equity focus on those who are harmed most and making sure that funding is directed at areas that are already seeing the impacts, but also globally, leading the way and making sure that this is a cornerstone of our diplomacy as we go out around the world. Um, if we fail to act now, we will continue to see the most vulnerable made worse off. And we saw it in our own city, where almost inevitably, when we saw uh, huge floods that came to our city, once-in-a-lifetime floods, only we had them twice in two years. So something's up. 
And sure enough, it was often the homes of, uh, in the lowest income uh, areas of, of town that were most likely to be destroyed uh, and where people had nowhere to go. All right. So here we're hearing Buttigieg talk about climate change, and he really starts off with this idea of talking about the tribes, the relationship with the tribes, them being a sovereign nation and respecting that what under his, his presence. And then he gets into this idea of the people that have the most to lose from climate change, which is an interesting frame on something which is a global uh, effect. It's something which is an impact globally that is happening. But he's saying that because the poor have the most to lose, and then he does this little thing here where he creates this cause and effect, because the poor have the most to lose, that's why we need to act now. Translation, that's why you need to vote for Mayor Pete. That's what he's saying. And because the poor have the most to lose, we need a national project. So here is this framing that he gets into talking about this national project. And it's not going to be a project that is about fighting other people. It's going to be about leading. So this is kind of a New Deal type of uh, project that he's talking about. Now, he is not the first politician to bring up some sort of big initiative that is going to happen on a national scale. What he's doing is using different words and using those words in a way that is captivating people's attention, their imagination, and inspiring them at what might be a time in which they're feeling um, really scared or an issue that they might be feeling pretty dark about. He's shining a light, as he says, on those issues. So he says this is one of those moments. What is one of those moments, right? This is nonspecific, but as he's doing that, that's pacing. This is one of those moments, pacing being we're acknowledging someone's experience right in this moment. This is one of those moments that we need a national project. And then he leads into this thing where he says, we're going to end climate change. Now, I don't know what he was saying, what he was thinking, what he was saying there. Um, that's not really the direction that I don't, I don't think anyone is saying is possible to be able to end climate change. Um, but certainly to um, steady it, to reduce it and to, you know, make it so that we're, you know, getting into a carbon neutral state is more of what we would like to have happen. But I think that's just an idea. That's just one of those examples of how a politician will take such an easy phrase and they will start to repeat it even though they haven't really thought out what exactly does it mean? What does he mean in climate change? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, so here we see one of the moments where Buttigieg again makes it clear why conservatives and why more moderate Democrats might be willing to support him. So one thing he does here, first he starts off by talking about you know the, the economic cost of doing it. And so by approaching it from an economic perspective, that's something that appeals to a lot of fiscal conservatives and to a lot of pragmatic Democrats and just Democrats who want to get something done by thinking that this is the way that we convince conservatives. So he's sort of coming at it from that perspective by talking about how the only way it looks expensive is if we fail to account of the cost of what we're doing. And if you account for it properly... You know, he, he uses all of this like accounting terms and expensive and the cost of, of, of the status quo and all of that. And so 
Then he transitions really well right here by, you know, building this bleak picture of the current state of the world. And then he has this optimistic message. So what can we do about it? So he's transitioning from emphasizing the problem and then places the listener into a solutions-oriented state where, of course, the solution is exactly what he's about to present to you. And and one of the things that he presents here is, you know, he says, uh, he talks about the, the sustainability of farming and how, uh, how we're going to transition um, farmers to be carbon neutral. And he has this great quote right here where he says, in putting out that call, I'm also recruiting a part of America that maybe has only been told that they're part of the problem and asking them to be part of the solution. So when he says this, what he's doing here is he's really talking about reforming farming, something that's going to be really expensive and really hard for farmers to do. So this is a, a, a topic that is potentially toxic to him in Iowa and among a lot of conservatives in rural America. But what he does is he reframes that by sort of relating the farmers by talking about how, you know, they've been beaten up. They've only been told that they're part of the problem, that they're the ones who are causing all of these issues. And so he's, empath he's empathizing with them and then gives them a way out. And that way out is supporting him because he's asking them to be part of the solution. And doesn't everybody want to be part of the solution? And he sort of gives them that option and sort of produces a, a, a positive perspective that farmers can have on him and his policies. And so for people who think that Buttigieg is just, uh, just being more moderate than everybody else, he's doing more than that. He's speaking in the language that these people understand that is different from what a lot of other liberals think and act like. And so what he's doing is, you know, really just masterfully playing toward, you know, people with different values than a lot of liberal Democrats do. And he's saying it in their language and he's speaking in their words. And so all of this right here is what makes Buttigieg this sort of mystery dark horse that is so appealing to so many people. And if you really love this episode here about all the things that Buttigieg is doing, you'll want to tune in next week where we're going to be talking about even more of his stuff from this speech right here, from this talk. And he's going to be doing a lot more of this, you know, speaking to the moderates. And, you know, uh, he's going to be addressing a lot of it, a lot more issues that concern people of color, which is another big problem area for Pete. We're going to hear exactly how he's going to be trying to appeal to people of color while also holding on to the stranglehold he seems to be gaining on the conservative and the more moderate wing of the Democratic Party. And uh, that's what we're going to see here next week in episode two.